morning. How is everybody today? Very good, very good. My name is Orlando. Uh, if this is your first time here, we would like to welcome you to Webster Baptist Church. Um, my hope is that you will find a church that uh, is open and friendly and loving. And please know that we are sinners. We will fail you at some point, uh, but we are glad that you are here and worshiping with us today. Uh, our pastor, Scott, is not here. Um, he is taking a wonderful sabbatical, which he deserves. Um, so if you were expecting Scott, well, hello. Um, it's nice to see you. Um, I apologize about that. But we're going to have a good time in uh, God's Word today. If you will, let me go ahead and open in a word of prayer because I need to calm my nerves a little bit. Emily, thank you. Josh, thank you. And uh, calm my nerves and we'll get right into it. So, Lord, we thank you very much for today. Uh, we thank you for your Word, your promises. Lord, we thank you that we can trust your Word and what you say to be true. Uh, and Lord, I just pray that today as we look at this narrative about the flood, uh, Lord, you will open our hearts uh, to what you have for us to help us understand more uh, your promises in, this, in these scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. So have you ever truly stopped to think about the truths that are present here in the narrative of the flood? Um, Think about what God commanded Noah to do. He commanded him to build an ark in a time when there were no such things. Um, he commanded Noah to trust him, which would probably be pretty difficult when you don't know what an ark is or even what rain is. But I want us to understand that the narrative that we find here in Genesis about the flood and Noah and his ark uh, is more than just a caricature for a children's story. Uh, we see uh, it's, it's almost requisite that, that our web kids and churches all over America are going to sit here and study Noah and the Ark. And they're going to have cute picture books. We're going to see giraffes walking on with, with big eyes and lions that are pretty tame. And all these animals are going to make their way up into the Ark. And it's really cute. And we might even throw in a couple drops of rain for good measure just to show that it was going to be raining during this time. As parents... We will uh, take our kids' nurseries and we'll put pictures of these same animals two by two up on the walls or maybe hang a mobile over the crib to sit there and reinforce to our children that this is an important story to learn, but do we stop and help them dig in deep to understand what God is trying to tell us? Well, we tend to relegate this story of Noah and the flood to only a children's story and neglect the important truths that God has preserved for each of us, especially as adults. I want to stop just a moment and reflect upon what has happened thus far in the book of Genesis. If you go back to Genesis 1, God has created everything we know and probably a lot about what we don't know and don't see. Uh, it'll be great to finally get to ask him about everything when we, when we get to stand in his presence in heaven. God pronounced in Genesis 2, chapter 6, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, that the penalty for sinning against him is death. He says, And the Lord commanded the men, saying, The man saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God gave Adam and Eve one command, 
don't eat of this tree. You can have everything else in this garden that I've prepared for you, but to obey me, don't eat out of this tree, because in the moment that you do, you will die. And of course, we know what happened after that is that Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent, and they sinned against God because they didn't believe that they would die if they sinned against him. They were ultimately thrown out of the garden and experienced death themselves. After being thrown out of the garden, um, Adam and Eve's oldest children got into a tussle over an offering, and Cain killed his brother Abel. We know that that was more about jealousy and the insufficiency of his own offering to God where his heart was, but Cain killed his brother. And then after that, Adam and Eve had another son, Seth, and we are told that through the lineage of Seth, we finally get to meet Noah and his family. In Genesis chapter 6, we see that sin has overtaken the world. It's become something that is repulsive to God. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention and thought of his heart was only evil continually. I wonder sometimes if we were to stop and take a look at ourselves, we might see us as individuals in that picture. When God sees me, does he see that my every intention and thought, my heart was only evil continually? Does he see that of your heart? God goes on in verse 6 and 7, says God decided to destroy the earth and its inhabitants because of their sin. And so here we are, God has created this earth, Adam and Eve brought sin into this earth, the earth has been populated with people who are full of sin, are evil in God's eyes, and God says, I've got to get rid of it. It's time to start over. So if we're going to understand the truths more than just the kid's story that's involved here, and it is a good story for our kids to begin learning, and then we build upon that foundation, the first thing we need to know is that the narrative of the flood is actually true and historical. Noah and the ark is more than just a child's story with cutesy animal characters and a few drops of rain. The space allocated to the narrative of Noah his family, and the flood is more than God allotted in Genesis for all of the creation story. Let's think about that. That is how important this particular narrative is and how much God wants us to focus on it because he spends more time talking about this than he does creation. Four of the first nine chapters are dedicated to Noah, his family, and the flood. However, just because we have this large section of Genesis dedicated to this narrative does not mean that everyone believes what God is saying here. As a matter of fact, there are many skeptics and unbelievers who will point to Noah and the flood with presentations of errors and inaccuracies at best and outright lies at worst. For instance, in 1879, the American agnostic Robert Ingersoll penned his infamous book, titled, Some Mistakes of Moses. Regarding Noah's Ark and the Flood, he wrote, Volumes might be written upon the infinite absurdity of this most incredible, wicked, and foolish of all fables contained in that repository of the impossible called the Bible. To me, it is a matter of amazement that it ever was for a moment believed by any intelligent human being. 
That's just one critic. Then another critic, more recently, here in 1983, uh, Douglas Fudiyama asked, can you believe that any grown man or woman with the slightest knowledge of biology, geology, physics, or any science at all, not to speak of plain and simple common sense, can conceivably believe this story of Noah and the flood? In that same year, the skeptic Dennis McKenzie, the one-time editor of the journal Biblical Errancy, which was touted as the only national periodic periodical focusing on the Bible's errors, argued that there is a large number of contradictions between biblical verses with respect to what occurred in this narrative. McKenzie goes on to allege that there exists a great number of difficulties, impossibilities, and unanswered questions accompanying the biblical account of the flood. Now, if we're going to look at the flood as truth and understand what God is trying to tell us as truth in this narrative, we have to believe that the flood is actually true, that it actually happened. And, and one of the last messages I did here two or three times ago, we actually spoke about the inerrancy, the truth, and the accuracy of the Bible. If there is one part of the Bible that is not true or found to be inaccurate, the whole thing needs to be thrown away. We as believers do not get the opportunity, the privilege to decide what is true, what is not true. It is either all is or it is all not. There is no in-between here. So we have to first establish the fact that what we're reading here is in fact historical and true. So I turn to the Bible itself first. And I'm going to skip through the Old Testament. There are plenty of passages in the Old Testament, but I want to take a look at what New Testament believers, New Testament writers, thought about the biblical narrative. If you look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 and 39, through 39, he says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. What Matthew is saying here is Noah and the people that lived during his time had no clue what a flood was. Despite Noah taking 120 years to build this ark and being out in his community on a daily basis saying, this flood is coming, whatever this is, God said he is going to punish us for our sins. The only way for salvation for you to be able to live is to be able to enter this ark. I'm sure people laughed and scoffed and said, okay, whatever there, old man. Until the day it started raining. And on that day when it started raining and the earth began opening up and water began coming up out of the earth's crust and that the ark that Noah had built began to float on top of that water, people started going, okay, Noah, we believe now. And Matthew is saying that that's exactly what's going to happen now. We live in a world of doubters, unbelievers. And when the Son of Man comes back, they may laugh and scoff now, but there will be a day when they're saying, open the door. Please let me in. I believe you now, but it will be too late. It will be too late. In Luke, very similar words. Luke chapter 17, verse 26 through 27. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving into marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 7 says, By faith Noah, 
being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Noah didn't know what a flood was. Nobody during that time knew what a flood was, but God had warned Noah. That's why he was building the ark in the first place. So as concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah had no clue what was going on. He didn't know what to expect, but he had faith in God and believed in God. We'll look at that a little bit more here in a moment to trust what he said. Peter, in both 1 and 2 Peter, has some words. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And in 2 Peter 2, verse 5, he says, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly. When you look at the biblical text, the writers of the Bible, the authors of the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, believed that the account of the flood as presented in Genesis was an actual true and historical event that influenced how they got to where they were in their lives. Now, that's easy for us to do as believers, look at the biblical text and cross-reference it with other biblical texts and say, see, it's true because somebody else said it. Well, So let's take a look at some extra-biblical texts or extra-biblical records. There are many stories of a global flood found in historical documents throughout the world. Uh, if you have been around for any time and heard any arguments against the flood, you've probably heard of one of the most famous, which is the Epic of Gilgamesh. The, the Epic of Gilgamesh is a long poem that describes a divine warning about a coming flood. A man is chosen to build a boat. Animals are gathered. A single door opens into the boat. Heavy rains fall, the man sends out a dove and a raven, the boat lands on a mountain, and the man offers sacrifices in thanksgiving. Is there any merit to the claim that the Genesis flood, then, is just another myth, perhaps even plagiarized by this Babylonian account? Well, if you look at the original uh, documents that we have, the, the I'm sorry, not documents, but the um, tablets that we have for the ep Epic of Gilgamesh, it actually appears that the account of the flood was added later to those tablets, even later than the writings of Moses about the flood account itself. There are many other accounts of floods from Australia, across Asia, Hawaii, um, uh, the ancient Near East, South America, Russia, and even Native Americans here in our own country, right here in our own state, the Cherokee, have a flood account as well. So you can look all over the globe and see that there are these stories that are very similar. Not all of them have exactly the same pieces. There's actually a beautiful grid out there that shows you which stories have what pieces of the uh, Genesis account of the flood. But in all, they tell the same story. Among all those accounts, there are elements of the Genesis flood, a corrupt world, a boat built to save a family, animals on the boat, the world changed by the waters, even birds flying out to determine if the waters had receded. So how do we as believers reconcile the differences and the similarities of these 
extra biblical recordings? Well, I think there's one simple answer. If we look at how we got all these stories, why there are similarities and differences, and it actually comes from the text after the flood. That's the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. The biblical account of history gives us the flood narrative. Then in Genesis 11, as man continues to sin, after Noah's repopulated the earth, Moses describes the events of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, it says, The whole earth had one language and the same words. What did you say they speak in Cambodia? Okay, see, I can't even say that. Kamai. Is that how you say it? Kamai. So, Kamai. And then, of course, we've got Spanish, English, French, Italian, all these other languages today. But imagine being alive and being able to speak to one another in the exact type of language and understand. That's what the world was like at, before the Tower of Babel. But as we are, we decided we wanted to be like God, so we decided to build some sort of ziggurat, some sort of tower to reach God. And in that moment, God, God said, no, I can't allow this to happen. I'm going to confuse their languages and disperse them across the world. Now, the account of Noah's flood had already happened before the Tower of Babel. So as the people were building the Tower of Babel, they had already had the story passed down to them from the elders and their families about what was happening with Noah's flood. They knew the story. Then God dispersed them across the world with a new language. And they took with them in that new language the story of a global flood. And this is about the time we also start seeing written history come into the world. We start finding tablets and later on papyrus, different types of paper, if you will, that people would write on. But until this point, it was all verbal, sitting around a fire, elders relaying stories to the younger people in the family. That's why God would sit there and have even the Hebrew people build towers of rock, and he would say, build this rock and leave these rocks here, so that way as you come by it later on, you can explain to your family what I did here at this point. It was very much a verbal conversation, and we as the adults, especially those with gray hair, were expected to make sure that it got passed on and that it was passed on correctly. Well, over time, with new languages... Stories start to change a little bit. They decide it's time to preserve those stories as much as they can remember. And hence, we get the story of the flood in all these different cultures across the world. But if you look beyond, again, going back to the Bible and understanding language and when different languages came in, we also have geologic evidence. Among the archaeology community, there is zero doubt of a global flood. Now, you, you can talk to many, many people out there, geologists, different types of scientific studies, and some will debate, some will deny, but in the archaeology community, I have been told there is zero doubt of a global flood. I, I used to do, or I still do occasionally, uh, tours for Highlands excursions up in Highlands. Has anybody heard of that, that group? 
Um, one of the things that we love, the, the owner of that company is a very um, uh, Christian man, a strong believer, strong in his faith, and he loves to make sure that when we're doing tours that we're able to share the gospel if possible. Well, here in these mountains, there is a tremendous amount of evidence of a catastrophic global flood. And then once you got up into Highlands, there's a place above Highlands uh, called Sunset Rock and Sunrise Rock. Sunrise or Sunset Rock looks to the west. On the other side of it, just down the path, is Sunrise Rock that you look towards the east. Well, I was up there giving a tour one day, and I had an archaeologist with me, and I asked him about a huge boulder that is just perched right on the top of that mountain. I said, in your professional opinion, how could this rock get here? He said, there's only one way. There's nothing above it. If you look below it, there's actually dirt up underneath the rock. It's not connected to any other rock, so it couldn't have fallen from anywhere. It's not connected to the rock below it, separated by dirt. He said, there's only one way, and that is hydraulic pressure. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, as North America and Africa would have slammed into each other, the waters of the Atlantic Ocean would have begun running up over uh, this part of the North American continent. The mountains would have started rising, and this boulder would have been but a grain of sand in the velocity and volume of the water coming out of the Atlantic Ocean. And as the waters receded, as North America and Africa began to pull apart again, the waters receded back into the places that God had them go, this boulder, this thousands of pounds, multiple tons of rock would have been perched here on the very top as a reminder that the only way it could have gotten here is through a flood. Now he said, you can argue the spiritual aspect of that, the faith aspect of it. He was like, but the historical aspect of it is that there is no way that this rock could have gotten here except by through a flood. Many geologists not all, but many geologists also agree that approximately 70 to 90% of the various rock layers and formations covering our Earth's mantle were laid during a global flood. If you look at the layers of rock, you see the rock, you see fossils, and they build on top of each other. Well, the only way that this could possibly happen, especially in such tight striations with the rock, is if it happened very quickly over a short period of time. We actually saw this fairly recently back in the 1980s when uh, uh, Mount St. Helens erupted out in Washington. Mount St. Helens erupted, all the snow that was at the top of the volcano began to melt, it washed sediment and everything down, it created deep uh, layers of sediment, and within a few hours, the pressure from the water and the soil on top of that solidified all that sediment. The waters as it receded dug canyons in a matter of three days. We have recent evidence that this can happen extremely, extremely quickly. So I'm just scratching the surface here. I encourage you to dig in and take a look at everything uh, that's out there. But based off of these few facts, evidence points to the biblical account of Noah and the flood being an actual historical event preserved for our study um, in the book of Genesis by Moses. And I encourage you to go out and study it and take a look at what's out there. So now, let's break down the story of Noah and its three main parts. There's three promises that we get from the story of Noah. And that is the promise of justification, the promise of sanctification, and the promise of glorification. Beginning with the promise of justification. In Genesis 6, verses 5 through 13, the text we looked at today, 
It says, the earth is again corrupt and God decides to destroy his creation and begin again with Noah's family. The earth is full of sin and he's going to take it back to day zero and begin again with just Noah. God was returning the earth to its formless and water-covered state that we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God was once again going to take the earth and cover it in waters to begin anew. From that point in Genesis 1, God created the perfect version of the planet that we currently live on, which is not perfect. From the beginning, God declared that the penalty for sinning against him is death. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you choose to sin against me, you will die. And we understand more context throughout that today that this death actually speaks of an eternal separation from God. Eternal separation from God. However, in Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin and death. So we have God telling us this in Genesis. Then we have Paul reminding us of this in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The corruption found in the world, found in my life, found in your life, requires us to die, to have our blood shed. However, God always finds a way for us to be in relation to him, a gift. In Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but. And that is an extremely important but that we need to stop and take a look at. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So just because we deserve death, God is giving us another opportunity at redemption to be in relation with him by giving us a free gift through a relationship with Jesus Christ our Lord. In Genesis, in the flood narrative, God provided a way for Noah and his family to be saved. An ark. God, what's an ark? Trust me, Noah. Just trust me. Here's how you're going to build it. And for 120 years, this old man, as he built a boat, people would laugh and scoff. He'd just be like, I'm trusting God. That was Noah's faith. He had to trust the instructions that God gave him and build something that had never been built before. And once that ark was built, Noah and his family, along with animals from all over the world, were safely on the ark. God closed the door, sealing everyone in, keeping them safe from the destruction that would soon come. Just like salvation today, God provides a way for us to be saved. God provides an ark. In this case, Jesus Christ and abiding in him. 
They literally abided in God's provision for safety, and in God's eyes, they were justified, just as if they had never sinned, from their sins. They were saved and safe from the catastrophic death coming into the world, as shown in Genesis 7, chapter, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. So what is justification? It is God's declaration that a man is righteous due to his faith in God and what Jesus has done, or in the case of Noah, what Jesus would be doing in the future. It is God providing safety from the penalty of our sins due to our faith in him. We go back and look at the text that we started with in Genesis 6-9. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah already had the requisite faith. He was already the shining light in the community. And that's why God looked at Noah and said, I want to start over with you. I want to destroy everything else, but your family, you as the leader of this family, are going to start over and take my word to an unsaved and dying world. God declared Noah righteous and right with him, Therefore, even though Noah and his family, just like us, were sinners, they had been justified in God's eyes. God provided Noah and his family safety from the penalty of death inside the ark. If you look at Romans chapters 1 through 5, God declares, has many declarations for the righteous and their faith and their salvation. Conversely, we also see what he says about the unrighteous and their death. The key point that I want you to take away here about justification is that God and God alone justifies the sinner through their faith, their salvation. Conversely, the wages of sin is death. You must die. You look at the next promise God gives us. It is the promise of sanctification. Once Noah was declared righteous, right with God, and entered the ark, life wasn't easy. Anybody here got saved, accepted Jesus, said your Savior, and thought that it was all just going to be peaches and cream after that? I know when I was a teenager, I thought that's how it was going to work. I'd never have to study for a math test again, right? I mean, that's how it's supposed to be. That, that's not what life is. Life on that boat was quite treacherous for Noah, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. God, what is rain? At this point, only a mist hovered above the ground, kind of like um, dew, if you will, watering the plants. The ark would have been tossed around, and Noah and his family would have felt their death was imminent on the rough ways created by the upheaval of the earth below the water. Today, we can experience tsunamis just from small earthquakes under the water, and it comes in and it destroys whole villages and coastlines. From a small earthquake, imagine the world breaking apart and the earth abruptly shoving itself up, forming these mountains that we live in, pushing water with it, and what that would have done to the ark floating on top. I can only imagine the fear and uncertainty and doubt that Noah and his family experienced. Noah was declared righteous, however, the storms raging around him, sanctifying him, setting him apart for God's purpose. Noah had been chosen for a purpose. Sanctification is that process of setting someone or something 
apart for God's special use and purpose. And we also use it to say that we become more like Jesus. Once you are saved, life is not promised to be a sea full of calm waters. Rather, we are told time after time that as we become more like Christ, our lives will probably become more difficult. Noah and his family were tossed and turned in a vessel provided by God for their safety. With our lives, we are tossed and turned in a vessel we call salvation through Jesus Christ, which is God's free gift to us despite our sinful lives. God had a special purpose for Noah to rehabitate and populate the earth with descendants who would understand how to walk righteously with and before God. God has a special purpose for us today too. Matthew 28, verse 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Noah was to take his walk with God and teach his children how to do the same so they could teach their children how to do the same. And generation after generation, they would be taught how to walk and love God more than anything else. And that is our purpose, to take God's love, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, out into a dying world to let them know you are loved and all God wants is to walk with you. Our other purpose, as mentioned in song earlier, is to worship God. We are here to worship God in, with everything that we are. And Noah, we'll see, actually did that as soon as he got off the ark. Noah was to use his sanctification to spread the good news of God's redemption and saving grace to a new world, just as we are. So what does all this matter? God sanctifies us. He's the one who makes us more like Christ so we can take the gospel of Christ to a sinful and dying world. God's last promise is, is of glorification. At the end of Noah's journey on the ark, God provided a promise, and we see it all the time. Actually, Emily had several pictures of rainbows up in her slide, and that's the promise we think a lot about. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 13 through 15, it says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth, and the water shall never again come, become a flood to destroy all flesh. That's the promise we typically think about from Noah's flood. But this is not the promise that we receive when we receive the grace and mercy provided by God's free gift of salvation. Rather, we see the purpose of, of God's justification for our life and sanctification in Genesis 9.20 after Noah and all his family leave the ark. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, our purpose is to offer sacrifices, to worship God and give that pleasing aroma. When there is bloodshed for our sins, it is pleasing to God because then we get to stand in front of him, righteous and holy, not because of anything that we have done, because of what our sacrifice 
has done. The idea of an pleasing aroma can be found 16 times in the book of Leviticus to describe the importance of aroma of sacrifice to God. This sacrifice, if we go back to Romans 6.23, is Jesus Christ. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. God was pointing to the sacrifice Jesus would make on the cross here in the narrative of the ark, in the narrative of the flood, that Jesus would provide later on on the cross. In Genesis, we see the pleasing aroma of the coming sacrifice of Jesus, the final shedding of blood for our sins. Through the process of justification and sanctification, we receive glorification. Now, we typically think of glorification in terms of receiving a perfected body so that way we can enjoy that body in the presence of God in heaven, such as the new world that Noah got to experience as the floodwaters receded. However, I want us to focus on not what, what we, we receive, but rather the ability to worship God in his presence. That is what our glorification is all about, is to be in the presence of God. Noah, after being justified by dwelling in God's promise of salvation on an ark, being sanctified by trusting through the storms of life he experienced on the ark, was able to worship God through his glorification and offer the pleasing aroma of a burnt offering sacrifice in God's presence. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, tells us that we are supposed to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God by not conforming to this world. Noah didn't conform. Rather, he stood out like a sore thumb, building a boat when nobody knew what a boat was. He lived a righteous life, and through the turmoil, he stayed faithful, drawing closer to God, while waiting for the opportunity to worship God, providing an offering, a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. God glorified Noah so that Nora, Noah could glorify God. And God is doing the same for you. The key point here, God glorifies us so we can glorify him. So in conclusion, I promise you we're here. In the end, to be saved, we must understand the need for a Savior. Noah would have never entered the ark if he didn't believe that the world was sinful and that God made a promise to him to save him if he built the ark and would abide in it. We have to understand the need for our Savior. He may not have understood what an ark was, but he could see his sinful nature and the sinful nature of the world around him. God promised to save Noah and his family, because Noah trusted in God. God provided a way of salvation for Noah from his sins, this justification through the building of that ark. And then God sanctified Noah and his family through the turmoil of life on the ark, drawing them closer to him every day, even when trusting may have been most difficult, being prepared for God's special purpose in his life to teach the generations how to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. And finally, God glorified Noah, which allowed Noah the opportunity to glorify God through worship. And so all of this boils down to three simple questions. And if the music team wants to come up, you are more than welcome. 
The first question I have to ask is, are you saved? Do you recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, willing to accept the ark that God has built for you through Jesus Christ? If you're not on the ark, when the waters start rising, you'll be knocking at the door. And it will be too late. All of us, myself included, are in need of a Savior. And if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I pray today will be the day that you do so. Second question, are you fulfilling your special purpose, being on mission and worshiping God? Are you taking the gospel with you every day, everywhere you go? Or are we hiding it? Are we worshiping God every day, everywhere we go? Or do we only leave it for Sunday mornings? What does worship look like in our life? We can't just be Sunday morning quarterbacks. I'm a Christian, but not on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'll see you Sunday morning. It's not how this works. And are you glorifying God because of what he has done in your life? Because you are saved. Because he is bringing you through the tossed seas of life. When you step out and you have the opportunity, are you turning around and giving God the glory for what he has done? Because it's nothing you nor I could do on our own. It all comes from God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. As we get ready to leave here today, those are what I want you to think about. Where are you? Need of a Savior? Being sanctified? Are we glorifying God because of everything he has done for us? Let us pray. Father, I thank you so very much for the promises that you have given us. Lord, I thank you that we can know that your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross to provide an ark, a way of salvation from our sin, the sinful nature of this world. And Lord, I just pray that as we go throughout our lives, even though it won't be easy, even though we're going to be tossed around, we're going to be mocked and made fun of, Lord, I just pray that you'll continue to draw us closer to you, sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus Christ, so that way we can fulfill your special purpose and mission for us in our life. That's to take the gospel to a lost and dying world and honor, glorify, and worship you. Lord, I pray these things in your name. Amen.